Welcome to Ethos and our first family worship service. Whether you're a part of our church family or just joining in with us, you are welcome and I'm glad you're joining us today. Feels very good to connect with you. We've been apart and somewhat isolated this last week and so it feels very good to connect with you even if it's virtually. We get to celebrate and worship our King today together through this medium. I want to lead you through a time of worship that is specifically designed for you to worship with your family or your friends or even alone in your home. Feel free to pause the, the video and reflect or to pray or uh, whatever you need to do to make this time meaningful for you. You will notice that we've provided notes for you to help you go through our service here. Uh, you'll see that if you have children that they're color pages, so you can pause the video and print them out and let them color uh, on the pages. And there's even a craft for them to do uh, together to talk about Jesus uh, as a family. After the message, I suggest that you talk about it. Ask uh, each other questions and thoughts that were uh, brought about by the studying of God's Word. We provided a few uh, starter questions for you, but I encourage you to do that. If you're alone, where well, you can call somebody or talk to someone, perhaps in your ethos group, and share together what God is teaching you in this time of worship. With that, let's open our time uh, asking our Lord to bless our time together. Father, you know that this is a little different for us. We've never had to meet together via the internet before. But we trust you and we believe that you're here with us, that you've not left us or forsaken us, but that in somehow our feeble efforts to worship you, that you will meet us here and that you'll be honored and your reputation furthered in us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would show yourself strong all across our city. May we truly worship you. Show yourself strong against our enemy, and I pray that you would grant hope and peace to your people. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to lead you now into our call to worship would like for you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 19, a beautiful declaration of the God's glory. Read with me. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chambers, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. this point, I would like to lead us through a time of confession of our sins and assurance that we are forgiven. Jesus teaches us that we are to confess our sins and trust that we are cleansed of our sins. And so in this this time, I will read a section, and then if you will see in your notes, there are times when You're encouraged to read with me aloud where you're at, and I will help you in those times. Let's confess our sins together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and leads me into the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now together we read, Yet we surrender to our own restless hearts, turning to our own rebel lusts, and avoiding the abundance of your all-sufficient supply. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. And together we read, Yet we surrender to our own restless hearts, not trusting in your ever-abiding presence and allowing fear to lead us away from your righteous path. Now let's gain assurance of our forgiveness. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have been welcomed to the feast with God. And together we read, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. In Christ, you are sons and daughters. You have been received the fullness of the benefits of God, forgiving your sin, redeeming your life, satisfying you with good and crowning you with steadfast love and mercy. Together we read, Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks be to God. I would encourage you to join me in a time of intercessory prayer where we make our requests known 
unto God. Please pray with me in regard to three areas. We will pray together for healing, for redemption, and for peace. And the way we'll structure this is that I will pray a short prayer regarding healing, for example, and then I will leave a pause for us to pray together during that time, and you to pray privately, and I'll pray privately, and then we'll move on to the second and then the third. So join me in, in prayer. Our Father, I join with my brothers and sisters in bringing our request to you. You have called us to come to you, to pray to you. We know that you are our, our loving Father and that you love and you care for us. And we know that you hear us. You bid us to come into your throne room and lay these requests at your feet. So we pray, O oh God, for healing. We pray that you'd heal the nations, that you would wipe out this wicked virus. For those who have fallen ill, we pray that you would heal them of this and any other disease that, that is afflicting us. I pray that you would heal us, O oh God. Now, Father, we pray together for the redemption of this world. I pray, O oh God, that you would use this virus to draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself. How we long to see an outpouring of your spirit like the world has never seen. I pray that you would bring to your own people an outpouring of your spirit that we might know the height and the depth of your great love for us. And Father, we now pray for peace. You know our inclination to be anxious especially during this time where we can be concerned about our health and our finances and our world, our children, our parents. We pray for peace. I pray that you would still our anxious hearts. We lay these requests at your feet. Now, Lord, you have told us in Philippians 4 to rejoice in you always. To not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, to let our requests be made known unto you. And you promise that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. May it be, O Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, uh, we began 
our look at God's Word in a new chapter as we have together, as you know, worked through uh, the Gospel of John. In John chapter 9, we read of a blind man, a man who was born blind, and how Jesus healed him and gave him sight. And the story comes together as how we see that the blind man receives his sight, but yet we also see how the Jewish leaders who were sighted are also spiritually blind. And so we see the play between these two throughout this chapter. It seemed appropriate for me to introduce this chapter to you today in light of these last week's events and consider what God teaches us about suffering and his role in it from these opening verses. And so we'll read together John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Please follow along. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is God's word. In the last chapter, we see that the Jewish leaders were so angry with Jesus that they tried to kill him. We find here in chapter 9 that Jesus walked out of the temple with his disciples and he saw a blind man sitting begging outside the temple. This prompted the, the disciples to ask him a question. Disciples assumed that it was someone's sin that caused this man's blindness and so they asked him, Teacher, did this man sin or was it his parents' It's not an unpopular belief that our suffering comes from something that we've done or something else or something that someone else has done. It's a view that goes all the way back to the book of Job. And when Job suffered and his so-called friends came to him, they asked him over and over again about his sin and about his private sin and They assumed that his suffering was due to sin. But Jesus said, no, that is not the case at all. all." He healed the man. And for the rest of the chapter, he will weave together several themes around sight and blindness about life and death. Today, I want to spend some time thinking with you about what we can learn about God and suffering from these early verses of John chapter 9. C.S. Lewis wrestled with the problem of suffering and why God would allow suffering in his world. He wrote a little book expressing his thoughts called The Problem of Pain. And in it, he writes, If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if he were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. Why is it that people suffer? And the question more often asked is, 
Why do I suffer? Where is God in all of this? If God so loves the world, it would seem to me that this is a crazy way to express his love. If God were all-powerful and good, why doesn't he step in and stop the world's suffering and my suffering? Obviously, we won't answer a lot of these questions in our short time together. And frankly, I'm not wise enough to answer many of them. But I do believe there's some underlying principles that jump out at me from these early verses. We find in these verses that the disciples made three assumptions. Two of those correct, and one of them very incorrect. So let's look at these assumptions. The first correct assumption that the disciples made is that God is sovereign in suffering. The disciples made the assumption that God was sovereign, that that he was in charge and in control, that God himself was ultimately responsible for this man's blindness. When we say God is sovereign over his world, we, we mean that he's in charge, that he rules. He rules his domain as a king, absolutely rules those under his authority, that he is the ultimate authority of all the universe. To say God is sovereign means that there's not even one lone molecule anywhere in the universe that does his own thing, that does what it wants, that is not under control of the will of God. For you see, if God is not control of all, he is not in control at all. The scripture presents a God who is the absolute king with absolute control over everything from the furthest galaxy to the smallest particle. Now, when it comes to radical sovereignty, as the Bible teaches, when we draw this into suffering, sometimes it makes us really uncomfortable. It means that everything in life, good and bad, Happiness and suffering, everything comes ultimately from His hand. Everything we experience can ultimately be traced back to His hand, both the good and the bad, because of our discomfort with thinking about God actually having something to do with our suffering. Sometimes we try to let God off the hook and say, no, 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 He didn't have anything to do with that. It was all of Satan. But think with me, my friends, that brings no comfort at all to me. Because that view means that in some way Satan has control in a place where God has no control. The thought that God is wringing his hands and wishing that he could do something differently in this situation brings me no no comfort at all. Remember the story of Job again. Do you remember that Satan did indeed bring great suffering upon Job? But Satan was on a short leash. God told him just exactly how far he could go and that Satan could go no further than what God allowed him to go. I do not pretend to understand the ways of God 
They're beyond me and beyond my understanding and how a good God can use suffering to accomplish His purposes. But I do know that God is sovereign in His kingdom. That everything in the world is ultimately under His control. God orchestrates everything, even suffering. You know, I read this week, about a man, a philanthropist, who was brutally killed in the Middle East. He was a very uh, public figure in his local locale, uh, especially to those who were lower in society. He was a good man from all accounts. He was kind and he was generous. But the authorities hated him. They hated him because he rocked the boat and he called them out for their corruption and and greed. So the authorities arrested him. They arranged some kind of kangaroo court and they brought in false witnesses, sentenced to death, and tortured him. Totally unjust. It would seem that they then went on about their business after their vile deed and no charges were ever brought. So I asked myself, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all this injustice and suffering in this good man's life? And then I read what I consider to be a very reliable account. It reads, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what does the scriptures teach us? The scriptures teach us that God ordained and planned the murder of his own son to purchase redemption for us. You say, yeah, but Steve, come on, that was a special case. Was it? What about birth defects like we find in this man? Well, we read in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, and the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him dumb? or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? For you see, nothing happens outside of God's decree and plan. Nothing. Not even COVID-19. My friends, I don't understand how it all works, but I do know that we serve a God who is still on His throne, and He's King, And nothing happens but what he ordains. All right. The first correct assumption that the disciples made is that God is sovereign in suffering. The second correct assumption that the disciples made is that God has a purpose in suffering. The disciples rightly assume that there was a purpose in this man's blindness They were right in understanding that there was purpose, but they were wrong in 
understanding of what that purpose was. My friends, God has a purpose in in all suffering. There is no suffering that happens by chance. There is no purposeless suffering. God will never waste any suffering, but will use it to accomplish his good purpose. He allows suffering. He allows suffering to occur not because he's helpless to stop it, not because he is impervious to our pain. It's not because he doesn't care, but because he has purpose and meaning. And this suffering will bring about his goal and his purpose. Every seeming insignificant detail of life is woven together to form the fabric of God's handiwork. Nothing in this world is left to chance. There is no such thing as fate. There is nothing that is simply left to work out on its own. There is nothing that works independently from God's hand. In addition, for followers of Jesus, we know that not only does God have a purpose in all things, but we also know because of his word that all things work together for good for them who love him and are called according to his purpose. From Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things are used by God, so overhauled by God, so employed by God that they turn out for our good. Now, it's not saying that all things are good. They are not good in and of themselves, but the promise is for those of us who follow Jesus that he is at work for our good in all things. So the first assumption the disciples made, God is sovereign in suffering. The second assumption they made was that God has a purpose in suffering, and both of those are correct. But the third assumption that they made was not correct, for they felt that God's purpose in suffering is to punish men. The disciples assumed that this man was blind because either he or his parents had sinned and that God was punishing them, punishing him for that. But Jesus said, no, that's not the case at all. He was blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man's suffering became the platform from which God's beauty and his grace and his mercy might be brilliantly displayed. Jesus displayed God's glory in giving sight to this man. So the question comes to my mind, if God uses suffering as a platform 
to display who he is and how he is moving in the world, the thought comes to my mind is how can my life be a platform to declare his worth even in the midst of suffering? Let me suggest three ways. First, suffering is a platform to display Christian contentment. I believe that suffering is the school in which contentment is learned. I believe that contentment is the epitome of experiential Christianity. It is at the heart of what it means to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let me read to you Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Not, Paul writes, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, when Paul writes this, to the Philippians. He is not writing in some ivory tower being a philosopher of life. No, he is writing to the Philippians from a, Philipp, uh, from a Roman jail. He's in prison. And he writes then that his mental state, his emotional state is independent and separate from whatever circumstances and whatever his circumstances might be. I'm reminded of another event in Paul's life. Do you remember Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 and how they had been beaten and thrown into a Philippian jail? They had been put into stocks. Their circumstances were not real great, And yet, the writer of Acts said that at midnight, they were found singing praises to their king, even in the midst of this suffering. My friend, this is not natural. By their their suffering, it became a platform to declare that Jesus is worthy. Worthy of worship regardless of life's circumstance. You know, this past week has been enough experiential proof for anybody that contentment is not the norm and anxiety is the norm in the midst of uncertainty. But as followers of Jesus, we have this great opportunity to be a platform, a beautiful platform that says Jesus is enough. He is worthy of praise and worship regardless of our circumstances. It is a great opportunity for us to be content in Him. Instead of looking at my circumstances to bring me happiness and wellness, as followers of Jesus, we can look to Him and Him alone and trust Him for my well-being. You see, to the extent Jesus is my everything, Other things will fade in importance. I can be content. 
The second platform I would share is that suffering is the platform to display his trustworthiness. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. Peter writes, Therefore let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let those who suffer entrust their souls to he who is faithful. The word entrust here is actually a banking term. It means to put something on deposit, to deposit something for safekeeping. You see, Peter is telling me that when I suffer, my role is to put my life on deposit with Jesus for safekeeping. When I trust him in all of my circumstances, I declare to a watching world that he is trustworthy. He is worthy of my trust. When my world is going crazy, I can trust him. I can trust him with my life. I know that he created me. He wove me together inside my mother's womb. He sustains me. I know that every beat of my heart and every breath of my mouth is a gift from his hand. I didn't earn that. I didn't deserve it. I didn't even ask for it, but it is a gift from him. So not only did he create me, he sustains me, but also he redeemed me. I once was as blind as this man, but now I see. He gave me sight to see spiritual realities. He changed my heart that I might be his son. If all these things are true, I know that I can trust him. I can trust him not to abandon me now. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He is worthy of my trust and I can entrust my soul to him. The third platform that suffering provides is that suffering is a platform to display his redemptive purpose. Suffering exists to show the beauty and glory of God in his redemptive work found in Jesus Christ. You see, this man suffered blindness all those years, primarily so it would put him at this place and this moment of time so that when Jesus came, he might give him sight. Physical, yes, but as we'll read later in the account, he believed savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ and gained spiritual sight. Not only that, but this man was used some 2,000 years ago to bring insight for us into what it means to have spiritual sight and to believe and understand spiritual realities. You know, as I was reading this account, I was reminded of another man who suffered so many years ago. In the book of Genesis, there was a man named Joseph who suffered year after year after year of injustice 
and pain in Egypt. None of it made any sense. He couldn't figure out. He didn't have all the variables needed. He wasn't given any of the answers about why he suffered or what God was accomplishing in his suffering. It was only when God raised him up into a place of position that he realized that he was placed in that position so that he would be able to redeem his family. God's redemptive purpose was then placed on center stage, and it was the platform from which God used to save his chosen people, the people from whom our Savior was born. My friends, I believe that God does this over and over and over through redemptive history in ways we recognize and ways that we don't. Suffering, your suffering and mine, will bring about glory and honor to Jesus Christ. His work of redeeming for himself a people for his own possession is often brought about by the suffering found in his world and in his people. My friends, we have a marvelous platform as followers of Jesus to declare his worth and his value. Jesus is worth it. I trust that somehow, some way, the mess that this world is in right now, God is using to declare his glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And we, as his followers, are a platform on which he displays his glory. May he grant to us the grace and wisdom to use that platform wisely. Father, I pray that you would use us to further your kingdom. Use us to display your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in closing, I would like to offer a, a benediction, a blessing, if you will. This is not my blessing or my blessing. Uh, does not accomplish a thing, but the Lord's blessing does. And so I will raise my hands, giving the benediction in the place of our Lord, using his words. If you will, even in your living room, if you wish to raise your hands like this to physical expression to receive his blessing, I close this time wishing you the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.